0: hello and welcome to the gestalt it rundown today is wednesday january the 19th and it it is national popcorn day i hope that you're enjoying a buttery or sweet treat um after you've eaten your lunch of course um my name is tom hollingsworth i am the host of this show bringing you all of the things exciting that have happened in the last week of news and joining me is the prognosticator professional himself, Mr. Stephen Foskett. Stephen, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much, Tom. It's nice to be here. And I'd like to put a shout out for Kettlecorn. It really is an amazing thing. Yeah, well, you
0: know, the best of both worlds is kind of something that we're all about here at The Rundown. Um, so we'll be bringing you the best of both world news stories today. Starting off with uh, a little question for you, Stephen, what state is round on both ends and has a giant chip facility in the middle? Well, according to reports, it might soon be Ohio because the rumors are swirling that Intel is going to be investing $20 billion in a new site that will be located in New Albany, Ohio, just outside of Columbus. The size of the deal lends credence to it being the one that CEO Pat Gelsinger has been talking about, the so-called megafab. fab, and that uh, would be a really big Uh, win for the state of Ohio. uh, Because of the proximity to the Ohio State University, it would be a very big boon for highly skilled workers coming out of there and hopefully do a lot for the area in general. Uh, However, New York State is also rumored to be in competition for the facility, and New York State has a very long history of being a chip manufacturing powerhouse, unlike the Buckeye State. Um, we're expecting the announcement to be made on January the 21st, and Intel is keeping mum on it, uh, not having commented to any of the news outlets that are carrying the story. Um, Steven, is Ohio looking to change its name to the Buckeye Chip State with Intel's help? Uh,
1: sure. No, I, I think it'd be great. Um, I, uh, disclaimer, uh, live in Ohio, and Gestalt IT is headquartered here in Northeast Ohio. Uh, this uh, location is a couple hours south of here. So uh, it wouldn't necessarily uh, benefit this local community, but frankly, I think it would be good to disperse uh, production of chips uh, around the United States. Uh, So far, a lot of chip production uh, has been built out in sort of the desert areas, uh, Arizona, Nevada, Texas. I think that it is probably a good idea to have some of it outside those uh, power zones, outside, you know, the, the typical uh, area where you're competing for workers uh, like Austin. Uh, so Ohio makes a lot of sense. Also, I'd like to point out that in the book Ready Player One, uh, the center of the entire universe is Columbus, Ohio. So theoretically, this is uh, leading us on the path to a uh, multiverse madness like uh, Ready Player One. Now, seriously, though, I think that it's a good place for it. Ohio has abundant uh, land, uh, abundant natural resources, a lot of water, uh, chip making actually uses a lot of water and Ohio has uh, very good uh, freshwater supplies unlike some of the desert areas. Uh, also, it has a pretty good uh, electric infrastructure here uh, and also, as you mentioned, a very good skilled workforce. Um, Columbus especially has been the home to a lot of high tech companies. Uh, the Ohio State University, as you mentioned, uh, does turn out uh, professionals uh, grads at a rapid pace and i think it makes a lot of sense to locate something like that in a state like ohio on the other hand as you mentioned uh, new york is also another uh, has a historic uh, chip making uh, ability there uh, it is where a lot of you know ibm chip making happens and so it would also be a good location My only fear is that there's some kind of uh, tax incentive war going on between uh, states like New York and Ohio. And it seems like those always benefit the companies and never benefit the states. So we'll see what happens. Uh, I think we should probably also make sure to put a bookmark in the fact that uh, is planning on using federal uh, chip making subsidies to build this plant as well. So, you know, uh, way to go Intel, um, and uh, it's certainly not a bad move for them, and I guess way to go Ohio if it works out. Tom, uh, IoT is an area where security is unclear at best. Given the power of these devices and the way that they must communicate with outside services, it could be enough to drive your security teams insane. DigiCert is taking a step to resolve this by acquiring IoT security provider, Mokana. The move adds significant capabilities to allow for device identification, secure firmware management, and device tampering detection. Terms of the deal were not disclosed, but uh, Mokana has raised $95 million in funding. Tom, uh, you're our expert in wireless and security. Uh, what's your view? So I think this is
0: actually a really good deal for DigiCert. And I remembered that a couple of years ago, back at RSA 2020, you know, in the old times before the pandemic, I actually had a chance to sit down and talk uh, with Mike Nelson. Uh, No, not the guy from MST3K. No, Mike Nelson is the VP for IoT security at DigiCert. And we had a great conversation back then about some of the ways that DigiCert was trying to fix some of the problems with IoT. And I wrote a great article for this over at gestaltit.com if you want to go uh, search for it. Um, Basically, it boils down to the difficulty in applying what we used to do with security. I say used to do as in heavyweight devices like laptops and desktops and infrastructure devices, trying to squeeze all of that into something that is using the cheapest CPU available to provide sensor data or something like that. Um, Now, fast forward two years, uh, IoT has not gotten any smaller. In fact, it's gotten a whole lot bigger. And it's more important to realize that there's a lot of things that people are starting to analyze as threats to IoT. You know, we mentioned some of them. The ability to disrupt firmware as it's being delivered to these devices because it doesn't take much to corrupt them. Um, The ability to determine whether or not that device has been tampered with. And if you think that that's not a big deal. Um, imagine how much chaos you could cause if you suddenly got a hold of a few temperature sensors and caused them to start misreporting some data. Um, There's a lot of potential there for um, misuse. And again, traditional security measures don't necessarily translate well to these devices, but there are companies that have come up with solutions and Mocona was one of them. And I think that this pickup by DigiCert is a really good move because it allows them to integrate that team into what they're doing and let's be honest 95 million is what they raised i'm sure they didn't get bought for 95 million i'm sure it was a a smaller multiple with the uh, the promise of having a bigger company like Digicert to be able to drive r d and innovation and things like that so i'm really looking forward to kind of seeing how Digicert is going to take the lead in this iot arena because like i i hinted at i don't think iot is going to get any smaller anytime soon Uh, the devices might shrink but we're going to see an explosion of them and trying to keep track of all of them is probably going to be enough to make anyone want to pull their hair out. All right, Stephen, an Austrian lawyer has successfully managed to make Google Analytics illegal in the EU. Max Schrems represented an Austrian user who accessed a health website in Austria, but was running Google Analytics and Google Analytics forwarded some personal information into the US. Now you may think, well, isn't that what Google Analytics is designed to do? Well, yeah, it is, except that's illegal under the GDPR and a new 2020 Privacy Shield legislation that is specifically designed to prevent EU personal information from being forwarded into the US where it can be included in mass surveillance programs thanks to the US government's capability to compel information from US-based companies. Now the judgment is likely to be appealed because who wouldn't, but now we're starting to see new pop-ups. Remember the little cookie pop-up that comes up underneath your thing, you have to agree to those thanks to GDPR. Well now there's companies that are starting to have pop-ups that say we may be doing away with Google Analytics because if we can't control this we're not going to want to run this on our site and possibly end up being sued or, or worse. Um, Stephen, does this mean that privacy is going to win the day here or is this the EU trying to go after some Silicon Valley tech giants on technicalities? Well, I hope it's the
1: former, uh, frankly, uh, it, the way that the internet works and all of the privacy invading things that happen, uh, frankly, uh, really get under my skin. And and I think that they bother a lot of other people as well. Uh, and, And frankly, a lot of them are not really compatible with any kind of privacy or data protection regulations. Remember, we've got GDPR, but California also has a similar law. And I imagine that there are going to be more and more laws like this all around the world. And it's hard to see how companies will be able to run businesses that are essentially privacy invading monsters in the wake of these kind of uh, laws. How can Google Analytics be compatible with GDPR ever? Um, I'm not sure exactly how they could do that. I guess they could regionalize it, uh, but would that break the whole value of Google Google Analytics if uh, the data was required to stay within the EU? And what about international sites? Uh, Frankly, uh, there's, I guess, two schools of thought here. On the one hand, you could say, well, this is uh, the last gasp of the dinosaur state trying to control people's data and trying to interfere with a a truly global internet. And then on the other hand, you have uh, privacy advocates saying, well, this shows just how bad these companies are and how much they're invading your privacy and good thing that the EU is standing up for people. I just don't see where this goes in a way that uh, companies like Google, but not just Google, every privacy invading company out there, I just don't see how they can continue to operate in the face of laws like this. And I think that they're they're going to have to either change their business model or spend an awful lot of time and money and effort trying to change these laws. So that's really what I see happening next. I think that uh, maybe a few of these things will... Uh, fall on the side of the governments. And then I think the privacy invading companies will fight back and they'll try to figure out a way to keep from having these laws implemented in the way that uh, would stop them from having a business. Ultimately, I think the uh, people who gain from this are those that are building, you know, secure and private systems that don't rely on mass data collection in order to uh, have a profitable business. So, um, You know, maybe uh, switch over to one of those services instead. Tom, uh, two weeks after a tense discussion of global cybercrime with the Russian government in recent weeks, the FSB has decided to undo some evil. Specifically, they raided 25 locations on Friday and seized $5.6 million in assets, including uh, 20 luxury cars from our favorite ransomware gang, R-Evil, or whatever you're going to call them. After a summer where the gang made big news here on the rundown and uh, then disappeared with their ill-gotten gains, the question quickly turned to who would replace them and if they would ever face justice for their crimes. Experts had wondered if Russian authorities would try to disrupt these gangs inside their own borders, and the arrests have received praise from the international community. But are they just performance art? Is this a shift to reduce visibility, or is this just Putin being Putin?
0: You know, it's difficult to kind of say this because when I was reading the story, I thought about the movie Black Mass. um, And I thought about the fact that you've got, you know, these criminal organizations that are operating inside of Russia. That's kind of like Whitey Bulger. And then you've got the Russian FSB, which is kind of like John Connolly, the FBI agent that's supposedly helping out, except these in cahoots with these people. Now, as a journalist, there is no proof that the Russian government is working with these ransomware gangs. There is also no proof that they have any reason to ever want to arrest these people. And most of the stories that will talk about this uh, development will tell you that they've been operating inside of Russia for years and nobody seems to care until the U.S. president finally put his foot down and said, I've had enough. I'm tired of these gangs shutting down operations here in the U.S. I mean, look at Colonial Pipeline, look at JBS Meats, look at Kaseya, look at anything that we've experienced over the last year. And finally, they've had enough. And let's be fair, Reval probably thought that they could just disappear and take some Bitcoins and a couple of Ferraris and pop up again later with a new crew and do it all over again. Except when you know where everybody's at, you know what they're doing. And sometimes you need to make a show of force so that, hey, it looks like we really are doing stuff you're going to pick up some of the uh, the low-hanging fruit, if you will. So much like in Black Mass, we're not going after the big people. We're going after the little fish so that it looks like we're doing a good job. But unlike what you would typically see in an FBI situation where the uh, the uh, little fish are going to roll over and, and give up the big fish, I think this is more along the lines of the little fish are going to go to prison. And they're going to confiscate some of these Ferraris, which will probably end up in the St. Petersburg FSB office as the new company cars. And then, um, yeah, it'll go back to being business as usual in about six months, because ultimately the Russians don't care. As long as they're not attacking targets inside of Russia or any Russian friendly places, who cares? Because it's disrupting things in the West and so be it. And let the U.S. president howl all he wants about how unfair it is. As long as we're still getting paid, or not getting paid, but getting the disruption that we're looking for, it ultimately doesn't matter to us. And I think that that's part of the problem. There's no solution in any of this that will succeed until the hearts and minds of the people sheltering them are changed. And we've seen this with a number of crews, whether it's the APT crews operating out of China or Lazarus operating out of North Korea. As long as the government either condones or turns a blind eye to these kinds of operations, nobody cares. And maybe the solution is to fight fire with fire and develop our own homegrown talent to raid these other organizations and these other nations. And when Putin comes to us and says, you need to shut down these ransomware gangs that are locking up all of my stuff because they detected a Cyrillic alphabet keyboard, maybe President Biden can shrug his shoulders and go, hmm, I'll think about it and then do nothing like Putin's done for so many years. All right, I'm going to get off my soapbox for a minute because we have a couple of stories that we need to take a closer look at. Um, Steven, the first one is about a new standard because the PCI Special Interest Group, PCI SIG, announced last week that they finalized the specification for PCI Express 6.0. Now, the short version is that the data rates per lane have effectively doubled, which means that the X16 slots, which are the widest ones, can reach somewhat of an incredible 128 gigabytes per second of bandwidth that's pretty impressive um the specification has been in development since 2019 and it's part of a cycle where pci sig is doubling the data rates of the uh, lanes about every three years Um, now why that's important is because if you look at the market right now gpus are getting really fast because they're being used for more than just displaying graphics in video games and when you look at the explosion of things like dpus and ssds and a whole bunch of other io devices uh, they're consuming even more bandwidth. Now, the hope is that the new specification came right on time and will allow advantages not only for these hungry devices, but also for these smaller devices that maybe aren't using the full width eight and 16 lane things. Because if the lanes are wider, I don't have to put nearly as many of them on my IO device, which means I don't have to invest as much in the hardware, which makes everything hopefully cheaper. Um, Stephen, Is this new specification really going to help relieve some of the pressure that we're seeing with the current devices running on PCI Express 5.0? Or is this kind of just playing catch up in the hopes that we can stall for another three years until PCI Express 7.0 comes out?
1: Yeah, I'm going to go out on on record and say that uh, PCIe 6 is a major, uh, major step forward, an important step forward, and perhaps even a bigger step forward than 4 or 5 were. So let me explain why I say that. So as you've said, uh, the, the the take-home message for most people is that PCI Express has a future, that the bandwidth is doubling, and all is good. Uh, they're maintaining backward compatibility. They are giving us more bandwidth. We're still going to be able to have you know multiple uh, size links, so x1, x2, x4, x8, and x16, as you mentioned. Um, Everything is, is fine with PCIe. But that being said, um, there's a real nuance here with 6.0, and that's that 6.0 is a huge step forward technically. So let me dive into that for a moment. From the very beginning, PCIe has used something called NRZ, non-return to zero uh, coding. And over time, uh, the first two versions used what was called 8B10B, um, like Fibre Channel, uh, the later ones used a uh, 128B, 130B um, encoding as well, and this uh, improved bandwidth. Uh, they also uh, increased uh, other uh, signaling rates to allow them to get to uh, 16 and then 32 gigatransfers per second on PCIe4 and PCIe5. And all of these uh, were very much the same technically. Like I said, apart from the switch to 128B, 130B encoding with 3.0, most of the PCI revisions have been pretty much the same thing. A lot of this was done to maintain backwards compatibility, but a lot of it was also done, frankly, to maintain costs because adding any real uh, extra capabilities uh, or technology uh, changing the signaling rates and things like that, well, it incurred a cost in terms of the chipsets that were needed to, uh, to do it. And, and, and frankly, PCI didn't need it. PCIe was working great, and it continues to work great. So essentially, uh, PCIe 3, 4, and 5 are basically the same thing, except faster. You know, basically just turn the volume uh, knob up a little bit, and, and it goes faster, and that's what we've got. And uh, all of those have been pretty widely adopted. Now, Intel was late to market with PCIe 4. Uh, AMD used that uh, as a battering RAM with their Zen chips, but Intel's there now, and frankly now, Intel is here with PCIe 5, and AMD is late for that one. But PCIe 6, well, that's a whole other can of worms. So first off, uh, PCIe 6 uses some something completely different. Uh, instead of using... Uh, NRZ encoding, uh, PCIe is using PAM-4. Now, if you're a networking nerd, then uh, you know what PAM-4 is, because this is the same thing that's used in Ethernet. Essentially, if you're a storage nerd, you might uh, recognize this too. The idea is that instead of having ones and zeros represented by a lot of signal and no signal, we have uh, three different levels of signal, So we can have (laughs) a lot of signal, some signal, a little less signal, and no signal. And that lets us encode more data into the same signaling that we've had before, which is frankly pretty much how TLC, Flash works, and all sorts of other things. So this instantly moved the standard forward, but it of course also requires a lot more technology to implement it. The other thing they've done is implemented something called FLIT, Flow Control Unit. Now there again, this is not an unusual brand new novel technology, but it is a technology that changes PCI Express in a major way. Because what FLIT does is it, has, uh, it, it divides up all of the data going over the PCIe bus into packets, universal sized packets that can then be used in different ways with different error encoding and error correction. FLIT, interestingly enough, is going to also be implemented in older versions of PCIe, which means that the PCIe 6 transition is actually going to improve the reliability and the flexibility of PCIe 5 and PCIe 4 and maybe even PCIe 3 because of this backward compatibility. So, hopefully, as you can see now, this is a huge step forward, but there's a warning it always takes a while for PCIe uh, technology to come to market. As I mentioned, uh, Intel was late with 4.0. Now that came out in 2017. Intel only really added it to their platforms in 2020 and 2021. Now PCIe 5 is here. Well, PCIe 5 has been around since 2019, but yet it's brand new in 2022. We're not going to see PCIe 6 in your friendly neighborhood server or peripheral chip for a few more years now. But when it does come, it's going to be a big move forward. And remember too, that a lot of important technologies, um, Compute Express Link, for example, are linked to PCIe and that those are really transformative for the data center. So from my perspective, as something of an analyst of systems engineering and systems hardware, I think that PCIe 6 will become not just a major step forward in terms of throughput, but a transformative technology in terms of the infrastructure stack.
0: Yeah, I would tend to agree with you there, Stephen. And and one of the things that I think is really important is the fact that we are starting to see an explosion in the number of these data processing units, DPUs, that are going to be offloading a significant amount of data from the system. And having something that kind of natively speaks a little bit more clearly with you know, things like Ethernet um, and has more bandwidth capability gives us a lot of additional flexibility when it comes to you know, moving that data out quickly. Because that's, that's the problem that we have. It's, we can build a, an in, a card that can do a lot of processing, but we still have to get the data there. And that's basically what we're trying to do is get the data to the card as quickly as possible and then get the card to get it out of the system as quickly as possible. And then vice versa in the reverse when you need to do something with it. And I think that ultimately this is a good thing. You know, sometimes we need to kind of step back and understand where the industry is going. And instead of, to quote Henry Ford, building a slightly faster horse that eats less hay, we need to do more. And I think that, you know, that's kind of what you've said here is that they're, they're changing some of the encoding mechanisms around. They're making things work a little bit more smoothly with the way that systems operate today. And I think that this is going to be very helpful for people in the long term. Um, But like you said, the long term is nothing you can buy on the market today and nothing that is going to be released in the next three months because it's going to take a while to get these specifications completely finalized and implemented in the current uh, device design chain and then get things out there. Um, It's the same problem that we see a lot in the wireless industry. It's like, oh, we announced a new standard and everyone's like, oh, I can't wait to use it. Yeah, you're going to have to wait about a year before it's actually deployed. So... Here's hoping that people can get this hardware to market relatively soon. Um, maybe by the time that they're able to do that, the chip shortage will be on the downswing so that we'll actually be able to ramp up production and get these devices out so that people can take advantage of them. Um, the odds are probably pretty good, though, that if you're already in the shift away from doing on-premises hardware deployments, you won't really get to take full advantage of this unless you're doing something you know, in a, a reasonably expensive cloud
1: instance for the time being. Tom, uh, as mentioned in the rundown previously, the 5G spectrum expansion in the C band is starting to heat up. The US Federal Aviation Administration has been stating for weeks that the deadline of January 19th is going to see flight disruptions as the impact of the transmission medium on aircraft instrument systems is still being evaluated. AT&T and Verizon, the major players in this expansion here in the United States, were ready to push ahead with the deployment of these new frequencies and create exclusion zones around major airports to study the effects. With mere hours to go today until flipping the switch, both providers have agreed to delay the activation of those towers around major U.S. airports to avert disruption to flight schedules. That's right. A number of uh, airlines canceled flights to the U.S. today over this controversy. The affected aircraft appears to be older aircraft like the Boeing 777, which is used by many as a long haul international plane. The FAA has claimed that it didn't have adequate time to test the C-band interference with instrument landing systems at airports before it was approved for use, and the deployment of the technology could have led to major delays and disruptions, or even worse. Tom, is this a big issue, or is this another case of cell phones on planes?
0: The issue here is not the technology. The issue here is the fact that you've got two groups of people who are heavily invested in things that don't want to budge. And so I remember uh, hearing some of the discussions around the six gigahertz spectrum allocation and uh, hearing Chuck Lukaszewski at Aruba talk about all the testing that Aruba had to do to prove that they weren't going to interfere with satellite downlink stuff. And you're telling me that even though this uh, this spectrum went up for auction months and months ago, the FAA, probably a true government agency that doesn't get off of its tail until it has to, couldn't figure out what was going on. Now, here's the Cliff's Notes version. The C-band opens up everything from 3.7 gigahertz to 4.2 gigahertz. The instrument landing system, specifically the radio altimeters, operate from 4.2 to 4.4. So you've got a tiny little amount of overlap right there at the top of the C-band and into the bottom of the altimeter band. The problem is, is right now, the C-band that's being implemented is about 100 megahertz of spectrum from 3.7 to 3.8. So there's a pretty wide spectrum gap right there before you bump into the radar. And anybody who's tried to deploy a five gigahertz band in times past knows that there are huge carve outs for uh, radar stations because they don't want anybody to interfere with any of the kind of radar that we have to deal with. So the problem is, is that the FAA doesn't want anybody to deploy anything C-band until they get around to figuring out how this is going to impact their systems. Want to bet that that's not going to happen by March of next year? because it's the FAA, and because these installations are probably never going to be upgraded. Like you said, the older aircraft are the ones that haven't been cleared yet. Most of the relatively new aircraft, like the new uh, 737s and 787s and things like that, are cleared to operate because they're not going to interfere with any of this stuff. AT&T and Verizon have even said, we're going to create these exclusion zones around airports, like 50 of the biggest airports in the US. We're going to test the deployments. We're going to make sure that we're not interfering. And they've even gone so far as to say, we won't even enable like the higher C band around the airports. But of course, the FAA managed to get this into the news by saying, if you do this, we can planes could crash. Like, they started off with the easy stuff of, you know, well, there could be massive flight disruptions because this system is only used in low visibility landings. On a clear day, they are going to be able to fly the plane and land it with visual. This is part of that whole instrument landing system. And if you've ever watched the seminal Christmas movie classic, Die Hard 2, you know what happens when people mess with ILS. It's bad. But the likelihood of this happening anytime soon is minuscule. So what happened was, I think you saw uh, a bunch of international companies that were not ready to even try to deal with this. So they canceled a bunch of flights that they couldn't get switched to newer equipment. I believe it was um, uh, the uh, Emirates airline said that we can't get a 787 to run this route, which is would be perfectly fine. So we're just going to cancel the flight. And then AT&T and Verizon begrudgingly said, you know what, we're just going to pause the rollout but the unsaid thing here is, all right, FAA, it's time to get off of your rear end and figure out what's going on. By the way, here are all the technical specifications for what we're going to be doing. You need to make sure that your systems are compatible with that because when you when it comes to these spectrum allocations in the C-band, and and Verizon can very narrowly define what gets transmitted. Again, 3.7 to 3.8, 3.8 to 4.0, they can leave a gap in between the top of their spectrum and the radar the problem is is that just like the microwave oven in your house i'm sure these radar systems broadcast across the whole 200 megahertz spectrum that they've been allocated and just don't care because they are not regulated by consumers they are regulated by the faa and the faa is like whatever we don't care as long as it works So there's going to have to be a lot of investigation that's going to happen in order to make sure that these systems are compatible with each other. And I'm sure that the bulk of that is going to fall on AT&T and Verizon, who are not government agencies, who actually can get things done in a timeline that isn't measured in years. And ultimately, what we're probably going to see is that there will continue to be these 5G exclusion zones around airports, and companies will uh, probably have to avoid deploying C-band technology. And then eventually what's going to happen is while we're going to be doing is complaining about the fact that our cell phones suck when we get close to the airport, because now all of a sudden the speed drops. And the FAA is still not going to fix their radar systems, because why should they have to? All they have to do is go to the press and tell people that planes will start falling out of the sky. And I know that that's the case because people that I know that are not techies were sending me the story asking if they were going to be in a
1: plane crash. And I'm like, no. Well, first of all, I I do have a warning for everyone listening to this and that is please do not watch Die Hard 2. It is a very bad movie. Second of all, um, when it comes to the uh, issue here, I think that the important thing to understand is that this sort of, um, Collision is probably not the best word. This sort of uh, potential interference problem is uh, pretty, mu- pretty natural given the number of wireless devices that we have here and the prevalence uh, and the popularity of LTE and 5G technology. Frankly, we need to be able to uh, have wireless spectrum for all sorts of uses, and it's always going to be difficult to balance this stuff, especially since there are not international standards about which uh, areas of the frequencies are available for which use. Uh, in fact, there are plenty of standards, but uh, they do, don't always agree. So uh, for example, you know, in some countries, uh, the, area, the, the areas of spectrum used by these altimeters are already overlapped by other devices and could potentially cause issues on landings. And this has been known for a very long time. Similarly, as Tom said, uh, one of the other issues is the potential of unintended overlap when devices aren't supposed to use the same spectrum. But there could be harmonics or there could be mistuned devices or malfunctioning devices that could cause problems in these other areas. And this is not crazy. Um, I just looked it up. And uh, as you mentioned, Tom, uh, Emirates, uh, Cathay Pacific, Qatar Airlines, Air France, United, American, they all use these older 777s that could be still using these frequencies. And these frequencies absolutely could be stomped on by a... uh, poorly designed phone or transmitter or tower or something like that so so it's not a an academic thing also i I do worry a little bit about these exclusion zones because of course uh, have you ever had your phone give you the wrong geolocation when you look at maps i know i have and if the phone doesn't know where it is your phone could be trying to use frequencies that could interfere maybe that being said all of this is a problem of sort of old technology versus new technology. Again, as you said, Tom, the uh, ILS uh, altimeter system uh, that in, in question here has been replaced in most places and probably won't be a problem even in the places that it's not replaced because again, there's no overlap. It's just a potential. So I think that it's probably good that the Verizon and at and have backed off and decided not to turn on these towers since well, maybe it's a problem. I also think that it's very bad that the airlines and the FAA uh, went nuts over this potential uh, interference issue because, frankly, um, you know, if you cry wolf enough times, people are going to stop listening to you. And I can't tell how many times uh, in the last week I've heard people say, oh, I see. Is this like the fact that I have to turn off my phone in flight because the plane's going to crash if I don't? You know, People are already taking this with a grain of salt. That's not good for anyone. Because if there is a potential for an air crash, we had better take it seriously instead of laughing it off and saying, ah, oh, here it is, they're crying wolf again. So that's my perspective on it.
0: Well, here's hoping that they can get this issue resolved within a reasonable amount of time and that everyone comes out of it safely. All right, Stephen, we have a couple of things coming up that we wanted to make sure that everybody was aware of in the week ahead. Um, The biggest one, literally next week, is uh, Networking Field Day 27. We mentioned it last week, but uh, we're going to have a full lineup of presenters talking about all things related to networking. We're going to have a great group of delegates. some Some of them will actually be joining us on site in California. Uh, That happens January 26th through the 28th. And if you want to find out more information about that, please make sure you head over to the website, techfieldday.com. You can get a full rundown of everything that's going on over there, pun fully intended. Um, Stephen, what about you? What's coming up in the
1: weeks ahead for you? Well, I am pretty excited that we are also going to California for Cloud Field Day. So February 16th through 18th, tune in at techfieldday.com to catch the latest uh, from a bunch of companies talking about uh, cloud, uh, hybrid cloud, multi cloud, Kubernetes, public cloud, all that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah. And uh, the week after that, the week of President's Day here in the US, if you are a wireless professional and you'd like to learn a little bit more about some of the advances that are going on there and be in part of a really great community event, please make sure you check out the Wireless Land Professionals Conference, WLPC, which is happening February 22nd through the 24th in Phoenix, Arizona. You can head over to WLANPros.com to find out more information about registration and see if there are still any boot camps available. Um, Keith Parsons and his crew run a pretty great event, and if you are at all interested in wireless, I highly recommend you give it a shot. Um, We will be back next week. Um, That's the royal we because Stephen will be joined with a special co-host. I will be at Networking Field Day, so Chris Grundeman will be stepping into my seat to help Stephen with the news that happens between now and then. Um, But we will also be back uh, the week after that at twelve thirty Eastern Standard Time um, or Eastern Daylight Time, depending on when you're watching this. It's just you know, Eastern, and, uh, we will be running down the news of the week. And remember, if you have any news stories that you'd like to see us cover, please make sure you follow us on Twitter. We're at Gestalt IT. Tweet us a link to the news story. uh, Use the hashtag Rundown. Uh, We do keep an eye on those, and we'd love to see uh, some things that you have that are interested. And also, um, if you have any comments about some of the stories that we bring up in the show, please leave them down below Uh, if you're watching this on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash video. Some of our favorite commenters like Anders Nilsson and Al Rashid love to kind of give us feedback and help us understand kind of where things are going. Um, So, you know, we'd love to hear from you there. Um, also, if you're not a subscriber to the Gestalt IT YouTube channel, please make sure you do that, as well as subscribing to our Tech Field Day video YouTube channel at youtube.com slash day um, We'd love to be able to notify you whenever we publish new videos. But for now, for myself, Tom Hollingsworth, for Stephen Foskett, and our great crew here at Gestalt IT, as well as our amazing community, thank you very much for tuning in. We hope that you have a great day and an amazing week, and we will see you next time.
1: Bye.